Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how Noah was perfect or whole and not half-hearted, and how perfect the Lord Jesus Christ was and how He gave His whole heart for us. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And God has then advised the corrective action. Man's thoughts and his imaginations are nonstop evil. The earth is an evil place at this time. How do we know that Noah believed God? Because Noah did what God told him to do. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study in Genesis. God used Noah's belief that was proven by his obedience as a basis for God counting Noah righteous. Put Noah's name on the column of righteous because he believed me, God says. That's exactly the same pattern that was used for Abraham. God told Abraham, and leave your country, lech lecha, in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, God said, walk and keep walking. He says, now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Leave, he told him. And then he promised him, in verse 3 of chapter 12, Genesis 12, he said, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, in the same way God told Abraham what he was going to do, and in the same way as Noah, Abraham responded because the fourth verse of Genesis 12 says, and Abram departed. Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Now, that's an example for us. These two people are our examples. They are our examples. When we know that God is going to cast every lost, unrepentant sinner into hell, and that he has given to the world his gospel message for all to believe, we should respond with, what do I do? What should I do? That's the spirit of Abraham and Noah. Okay, I see what you can do. Where do I fit in? What do you want me to do? Just like Noah, Abraham believed God, and his belief, God said, okay, I see Abraham as believed God. Put him down on the list of the righteous because for his belief. That we get from Genesis 15, 6, where it says, and he believed in the Lord and he counted on it to him for righteousness. Just move him from the column of what I see as sinful and put him over in this column over here as righteousness. That's a righteousness by faith, by faith in God. And you can see how exactly Noah got this special type of righteousness. If you like to turn to it and keep your place in it, please, because we'll come back to it. Hebrews eleven seven. Here it says about Noah, by faith. Faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith doesn't see with the eyes. Of things not seen as yet. And that's an important two words, as yet. He moved with fear. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. 
Yeah, all that we talked about here of Noah believed God and Abraham believed God and God moved him from the sinner to the righteousness column. That's the righteousness which is by faith. So how did Noah move out to build the ark? By faith. What did he inherit as a result of his faith? Righteousness, not his own. So that explains how Noah was a just and righteous man. He had no righteousness in himself. Why? Because in Psalm 14.1, it explains that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they're corrupt, they've done abominable works. There is none, God says, that doeth good. There is none that doeth good. And that includes Noah. As Paul said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Why is there none righteous? Because there's no one who has perfect rule over his imaginations, over his thoughts. There's nobody who has perfect rule over his imaginations or thoughts. And are thoughts and imaginations so bad? Well, maybe not in the eyes of the civil law today, but Proverbs tells us in 24.9, the thought of foolishness is sin as far as God is concerned. This is very encouraging to us when we read this because it means that even though we don't have complete control over our thoughts, over our words, and over our actions, as some, a dear friend of mine told me yesterday about uh, a terrible thing that he had done when he got angry, even though he, during that time, didn't have complete control over his actions, and we've all been there, Our righteousness is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a righteousness by faith, not a righteousness by works. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God or from God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. God has made the Lord Jesus Christ for us to be our righteousness. And so when we're accused by the enemy of our souls, or when we condemn ourselves and say we're pretty bad and we're far from righteous, God speaks. Those are like weapons that are formed against us. And God says in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment. Why is the tongue going to rise against thee in judgment? Because you're not righteous. Thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Noah inherited righteousness. And then it says, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord, Isaiah 54, 17. It is so good to know that when we are accused with the weapons formed against us that accuse us of our sinfulness, that God steps in between us and the accuser, even if it's our own heart, And he says, do you have a problem with the righteousness of my children? You have to see me because their righteousness is of me. In Isaiah 54, 17. Now, when we're dressed and God says we're going to be dressed in righteousness, we'll say with the words of Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Oh, that's nice, wedding dresses. Oh, I look good. Don't you think I look good? You know, we've been there, seen that. And it looked great. 
And so he looks and says, oh, I feel so good. I look so good. Look at this. And that's the spirit. He says, as a bride adorneth herself, not just with the, with the dress, but the jewels. And he says, feel so special. He says, that's what God says. You rejoice like that when I have covered you with the robe of righteousness. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we wear that robe like a wedding dress. Well, if you're a woman, a wedding dress. But anyway, uh, of righteousness, just like Adam wore the God-made coats of skin. Our righteousness speaks of the one who died for us. Next, it says, Noah was a perfect man. Say, perfect? Oh, boy, here we go again. Perfect. How can he be perfect? Nobody's perfect. What does it mean? These are what it says in Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah's a just man. Perfect. Does it mean that Noah never sinned? No, no, no. doesn't mean that Noah was perfect in that sense because we've already seen that no one can be that. Well, what does it mean? The word used here, tamim, for perfect has this meaning of wholeness. It's translated in other places. Whole, sincere, complete, and without blemish. And what it's saying here is that Noah had a whole heart. He had a whole heart toward God. Noah was what we would say wholehearted. Noah was a wholeheartedly sold out for God. Have you ever prayed to God and you use the same phrases as I have and while you're praying, you caught yourself saying the words, but you're someplace else? You're thinking about something else? That's half-hearted praying. Have you ever read a Bible passage or several chapters and you close the Bible and you can't remember anything about what you just read? And if somebody came to you and said to you, what did you just read? You couldn't answer? That's half-hearted Bible reading. Have you ever started out with a purpose to bring the gospel to a lost person only to have your conversation reduced to just mundane things and you never talk about God? That's half-hearted witnessing. Have you ever, like me, had an unsaved friend or a relative who is on their way to hell? You know, they're not saved. They're on their way to hell. And that friend or relative has never seen you afraid for them going to hell? That's half-hearted concern for the lost. Have you ever heard a joke like I did this last week? We went out to the desert for a few days and around the pool. This Jewish man comes and he tells a joke about hell. You ever heard a joke about hell? You ever told a joke about hell? And you laughed? That's half-hearted belief in hell. After all, we would never, no one would ever laugh at a joke about Auschwitz. No one would ever laugh about that. Why? Because we wholeheartedly believe that there was an Auschwitz. Hell is infinitely worse than Auschwitz. Have you ever prayed for or talked with an unsaved person and never thought of or never let your heart be broken for the fact that he's bound for hell? That's, again, half-hearted concern for the lost. You ever come to church and been physically present in the pew, but you're not really there because you're not tracking with the teacher? Are you doing that right now? (laughs) That's half-hearted being in church. Half-heartedness is a disease that plagues us. When it says that Noah was perfect, it means that Noah was not half-hearted. It means that Noah was wholehearted. He was sold out for God. He was red-hot for God. God, he's looking today for wholehearted believers. 
He's looking for those who are red hot for God. He's looking for those who are 100% sold out for God because he wants to funnel his strength and his power into that person. As a matter of fact, you can imagine that when God is scouring the earth with his eyes, that he's getting eye strain for that. Someone should get him an aspirin. It says that in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is whole toward him, wholeheartedness. So God calls half-heartedness, he calls that lukewarmness. And we all know what he thinks about lukewarmness. And we have this indication. And it's interesting when you read all of the verses in Revelation 3 together. And he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, he said, I will spew you, I will vomit you out of my mouth because thou sayest, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee, he goes on to say, buy from me, buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes solved, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, and that word is hot. Be hot, he says. Red hot. Well, it says zealous. Therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Half-heartedness comes from when we think that we're on easy street, that we're comfortable, that we don't have any troubles or problems. Show me a believer who thinks that he's rich, that he's increased with good, and he doesn't have a need for anything, and I'll show you a half-hearted believer. Half-heartedness is the disease. And that's why Paul and Peter said, as a remedy for that, Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.16, Wherefore, you speaking to Timothy, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.1, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And our teacher for not having half-heartedness is David, king of Israel. David, king of Israel, he worked hard to have a whole heart. He worked hard to be on fire for God. He said in Psalm 9.1, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. Psalm 111.1, praise you the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright in the congregation. Psalm 119.10, with my whole heart. Have I sought thee? Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Psalm 119.34 Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Psalm 119.145 I cried, that's prayer, I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. So where's our example of wholeheartedness? It's in the King David, we see that there. But it's also in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in his wholeheartedness for his love for the Jewish people who rejected him. Turn, if you would, please, to Jeremiah 32, 41. God says, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Even though the Jewish people have rejected him, 
and despised him. We see in the Lord Jesus Christ such a love for them that he says, I've thrown my whole heart into this. I've thrown my whole soul into doing them good and into planting them in the land of Israel. Well, that's as far as we can go this morning. Let's pray. Father, please, we're asking you this morning, each one of us, give us this whole heart. Give us, Lord, make us to be red hot, on fire, 100%, sold out for God, like Noah, like David, like you, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, today you said that even though the Jewish people reject and despise the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has such a love for them that he has thrown his whole heart and his whole soul into doing them good. How do we know that's true? Very good question. Because this is the statement, that he has thrown his whole heart, his whole soul into doing them good. So how do we know that's true? What's the greatest good that he could do for the Jewish people, really for any person? It is to translate them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is to take their boarding pass that says destination hell, rip it up, and give them a new boarding pass that says destination heaven. That's the greatest good. How do we know that he has thrown his whole heart and that he has thrown his whole soul into doing that? Two passages in the Bible tell us that, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. If you look at Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and you look at it from that question, from the viewpoint of that question, how do we know from Psalm 22, from what David wrote, that the Lord Jesus Christ threw his whole heart and his whole soul into doing the Jewish people good? Because Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? In other words, he threw his whole heart, his whole soul into doing them good because he was willing for their sakes to be forsaken by God. Verse 6 of Psalm 22 says that he is a worm, but I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men and despise of the people. Was it pleasant to be a reproach of men and despise of the people? Not at all. Then why did he do it? Because that through doing that, he could bring the people, the Jewish people and all people who would trust in him to heaven. He was willing to become a worm. He was willing to become a no man. He was willing to be the reproach and despised the people. Verse 7 says that all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shook their head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. He was willing to be laughed at. He was willing to be mocked with the those words. Verse 12 says, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me. Maybe that's referring to the demons of hell. He was willing to be surrounded by the demons of hell. He was willing to be terrified for their for the sake of the Jewish people and all people would trust in him because he was throwing his whole heart, his whole soul into doing them good. When it says in verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint, My heart is like wax. It is wet melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. We see that in order to save the Jewish people and all people, he was willing to be dehydrated to the point of death. 
It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. He was willing to be nailed to a cross. That's how he threw his whole heart and soul into it, so that he could do them good by opening heaven's doors. When it says, they parted my garments among them and cast lots on my vesture, he was willing to see his last possession be gambled away by the Roman guards in order to bring the people to heaven. And then in Isaiah 53, where it speaks so clearly about him as the one who grew up before the Father as a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground. He had no form, no comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was willing to make himself, as it says in Philippians 2, of no reputation and take upon him the form of a servant. He was willing to take on flesh and not even impressive flesh. He didn't look like Goliath. He didn't look so impressive as as, uh, King Saul. He just was, it says, no beauty when we see him, no beauty that we should desire him. How do you describe how he looked? No form, no comeliness, nothing special, no beauty we should desire him. He did that. He was willing to be that because in consequence of being being like that, it says in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he's despised. He's rejected of men. He becomes a man of sorrows. He's willing to be acquainted with grief. He's willing to have people hide their faces from him. He's willing to be despised and not be esteemed at all. What does it show? It shows that with his, he's throwing his whole heart, his whole soul into becoming the sacrifice, the sacrifice that was despised. The fact the sacrifice couldn't be killed unless he was despised and rejected of men. But he did this. He took on the form of not so impressive, so that he could become the sacrifice that died for our sins. It says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. We looked at him, we said, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We said, God is doing that to him. And indeed God was, because the Father was putting to death the Son for the sins of the world. And that's what it says in Isaiah 53, 5, when it says he was wounded for our our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. He was willing to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our tra- iniquities. Why? Because he was throwing his whole heart and soul into the process of becoming the atoning Lamb of God that we could have and not come to God. God forbid that anybody should come to God empty-handed. But we come in our hands with the sacrifice when we make his soul our offering for sin, as it says in Isaiah 53, 10, that it says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, shall see his seed, prolong his days. We, in other words, we become a child of God. We get eternal life. And that's all because he was willing. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, that we are like sheep, gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's behind that that's not written, he was willing to have laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because it says that in verse 8 of Isaiah 53, it says that for the transgression of my people, what's, what's meant behind that statement that's not written? He was willing to be stricken for the transgression of my people. And so it says there, 
that by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How did he throw his whole life and his whole soul into this, his whole heart? Because he was willing to bear their iniquities. It says in the last verse of Isaiah 53, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. His whole soul, his whole heart was had to be in this for him to be willing to pour out his soul unto death, for him to be willing to be numbered with the transgressors, though two thieves, one on the right hand, one on the left, for him to be willing to bear the sin of many in order that he might make intercession for the transgressors, for you and I. What's the greatest intercession that we need? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those were his words. Well, how could the Father forgive these ones who were doing this against them? Because on the one hand, he's saying, Father, forgive them. On the other hand, he's presenting his own pure, spotless blood, and he's saying, I died for them. Therefore, Father, forgive them. Only a person who puts his whole heart and his whole soul into wanting to see them come to heaven would be willing to die for their sins, and that's what he did. Thank you for joining us today. Now, we'd like to encourage you this week to visit the friendshipwithgod.org website. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Now, we've added some new features to our website where you can sign up for a Tom Cantor daily devotional verse that will come to your phone or your email. So you can sign up today at friendshipwithgod.org. And you can also sign up on our websites to receive the Friendship with God or Israel Restoration Ministries newsletter, where you'll hear about our upcoming Summer Blitz campaign to reach 1 million lost Jewish people this summer in 17 major Jewish cities. You can also sign up on our website to have a free Tom Cantor gospel DVD and booklet sent to a lost Jewish person that you know. So go to our website today, friendshipwithgod.org, or you can call us directly to get that free gospel gift for a lost Jewish person today. Call us 1-800-247-3051. That's 247-3051. 1-800-247-3051.